This is not the first time that I will use or have used Lego as an opening sermon illustration. But both of my sons were, I say were, to some extent they even still are uh, Lego aficionados. Um, I say aficionados so that I don't say um, addicts. Um, and there were a number of times I remember where our, one of my sons or both would receive a new Lego set and they would rip open those packages and dump out all the bricks and pull out the instructions and they would start building these different creations. They would follow the instructions piece by piece, but often, particularly with larger builds, they would arrive at a point where the instructions called for a particular piece to fit in a particular spot. And often, that piece could not be found. So there would be these moments of ranting and raving about how Lego can't be trusted and how they didn't send the right pieces and how this set isn't correct. And then, it, sometimes that was the issue. Other times, there, the piece was there, but there wasn't enough space for it to fit where the instructions said it was supposed to fit. Now, when they got to those situations, we discovered that it was never Lego's problem. In other words, eventually, eventually, it came to light that all the pieces were there, that the instructions were not wrong, but somehow the problem lay with the builders. And to fix that problem sometimes meant going all the way back to the beginning and looking at each step to figure out where they had made the mistake. As a church, Calvary International was founded to be a missions church or a mission-minded church. It wasn't founded with the name Calvary International Church. It was begun Metropolitan Chapel. That's what I remember it as uh, being called as a child. And we have been, throughout all of our history, ascending church, a supporting church for missions. And while I do not think that we have completely lost our way, I don't think we have, this next passage in Acts, though, provides an opportunity for us to go back to the very beginning of what we today call missions. It's an opportunity for us to evaluate ourselves and our church and how we conduct our part of God's overarching mission. And just to be clear, in how I'm using the word missions this morning, missions is when a church sends individuals or families from their church to minister the gospel to other people who are not part of their church and usually not even part of the church universal, okay? That's how I'm defining missions. There are different ways to define it, but so that we're all on the same page. And this is what we're going to look at today, the beginning of missions. Missions begins. It's in Acts chapter 13. I'll be reading uh, the first part of that chapter out loud. This is the text that's going to, to guide us as we go way back to the beginning and see how missions first began. We're actually starting with the last verse of chapter 12. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission... 
they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger. Hey, John, I'm going to go ahead and switch to the, to the pulpit mic. Can we do that? Thanks. Okay, I'm going to start over again, okay? Verse 25. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, here's the great transition, people. You know how all the time we've been talking about Saul and I keep accidentally saying Paul? It's because for the rest of Acts, Paul is going to be central. And for the rest of the New Testament and for the rest of the history of the church, Paul will be central. And we know him as Paul, not Saul. So then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. This morning, we're going to look at seven verbs that relate to the beginning of the missionary movement. And these are the verbs. I'm going to go ahead and give them to you now, and then I'll mention them and emphasize them more carefully later. Born, ignited, sustained, empowered, costs, fights, and keeps. Okay, real quickly, born, ignited, sustained, empowered, costs, fights, keeps. I don't expect you to keep track of all of those right now. I will mention them later as we move on. The first verb is born. Missions is born out of the church. Luke starts this account 
with a brief description of the leadership of the Antioch church. Before we get there, though, just a brief reminder about Antioch, the city. It was a very diverse city. Uh, it was a crossroads of trade. It was also a very religiously lax city. There, were, there was a lot of temple cultic prostitution that went on at two major shrines nearby. So it was also a, a city that was um, used to different religions, but also morally very decadent. So in this church, Luke says they had prophets and teachers. Prophets were those gifted by the Holy Spirit with the ability to speak a specific message from God to a specific individual or group of people at a specific time for a specific reason. That's the prophetic gift. But they also had gifted teachers. And teachers were the ones who instructed the church in the scriptures and how to apply the scriptures, the word of God, to daily life. So Luke is actually showing us a balanced church, a church who was gifted with both of these abilities, the prophetic voice and the teaching voice. Luke then also shows us, and we would probably miss this if we don't look at it closely, that there's a diversity in leadership at Antioch. And he says some things here that are, that are pretty direct, but they're important to our understanding of this diversity. Um, who are these prophets and teachers? Well, we, we know who Barnabas is already, and he's from Cyprus. So although he's Jewish, he's not originally from um, the Judean or the Israelite territory. Then we have Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene was in North Africa, what we would today call Libya. And so Lucius was Arab. That would have been his cultural and ethnic heritage. Then we get to something that's going to be particularly uncomfortable for us in today's climate. Simon called Niger. Niger means black. So it's actually a reference to his heritage. Simon was from some sub-Saharan Africa. And then we have Manaean, who not only was Jewish, but he had been raised as a foster brother with Herod the Tetrarch, the same Herod that tried to kill Jesus. They were raised in the same palace. He was raised as a foster son and a foster brother. And so, and then and you've got Saul. Saul from Tarshish, we know his history, we know his resistance to the gospel at first, we know his miraculous conversion. So Luke doesn't just list these names for us randomly. He's giving us a picture of the Antioch church, that they are made up of people of diverse backgrounds, not only of diverse backgrounds, but their leadership reflects that diversity. People from all over the known world have been gifted as prophets and teachers, and together they are bringing health and balance to this church. Luke goes through all of that because he is letting us know that missions, as we know it, this, the first missionary team that's sent out, arises and is born out of a local church. They're sent by the local church. It wasn't an idea that Saul and Barnabas had, it came to the church as a body. I think that's worth considering. Of course, I know we live in a modern world that is vastly different from the ancient world of Acts. I know that it is not always possible for missions to be birthed only from one local church and that a lot of good has come 
from missions agencies, from parachurch organizations that provide a sending umbrella for missionaries. But here's the danger in that. And I think it's a danger that we as a church face. When we send people through other organizations, we can often lose a sense of ownership and urgency for their mission and for their calling. So please hear me. I am not arguing that we should not send through other organizations. I am talking about our responsibility to remain connected to the missionaries that we send and that we support. Um, Because if we just send money, that's a blessing and that's important. But if the mission itself, the mission to proclaim the gospel to the lost world, if that's not understood as part of our gospel ministry here, if we don't have a high sense of responsibility to care for our missionaries, then we are falling short of our gospel mission calling. The very first mission was born out of the local church, and that local church took ownership and took responsibility for sending the first missionary team. The second verb, and I'm actually cheating because I'm putting two of these verbs together into one point, okay? The verbs are ignited and sustained. Missions is ignited and sustained by prayer and fasting. When is it that the Holy Spirit speaks to the church to set apart Saul and Barnabas? It's when the church is worshiping and fasting. In that context, the Holy Spirit says, set these men apart to accomplish the task that I have prepared for them. And if you notice, Luke actually sandwiches what the Holy Spirit says between statements about fasting. So first, they're worshiping the Lord and fasting, and then the Holy Spirit speaks. After the Holy Spirit speaks, so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. There's an emphasis here. So even after the Spirit speaks, there's a continuation of the fasting and prayer. And we don't know for how long that that went on. Um, I have a... uh, recently acquired uh, an older car. It's a 2000, and um, it's a, I, I really like it, it's a Santana, um, but the documentation is all messed up, and it's taken months and months and months to try to get this sorted out in my name, so I can't drive it, or I shouldn't drive it uh, for now, because that could cause great problems if somehow I get stopped by the police or have an accident or get a ticket. So this car has been parked for months and months and months in my parents' driveway. Um, This week, they needed me to move it to get it out of the driveway because, uh, well, that doesn't matter. Anyway, they needed to to do something in the driveway. So so I say, no problem. I'll come. The battery will be dead. I'll jumpstart the car. No problem. Uh, Except that it it wouldn't jumpstart. Um, the battery was totally, totally, totally dead. But my parents live on a slight incline, and at the end of their street, if you can turn down, there's a much steeper hill. So I thought, <laughs> I'm just going to get it started and roll it down, and then, I'll, as we say in uh, Portuguese, pegar no tranco, right? I'll, um, I'll uh, I don't even know what you call that in English. Anyway, I'll uh, trank start it. So, um, <laughs> so we're heading... 
So I, I get you creeping down this incline, and then I turn to go down the hill, and the momentum picks up, and it's feeling good. Okay, this is going to work, going to work, going to work. I tried three times, and I checked everything to make sure because I know my history with cars. Um, the key was turned on. I was in second gear, you know, popped the clutch three times, and it would not start. And as that slope evens out, the momentum slows down, Right? And fortunately, there was a good parking spot. And then I called Glenn. But anyway, um, true story. Uh, even Glenn couldn't fix this problem, though. I just want to say that. So a mechanic had to come. That's a long story. You know where it was going. But here's the point. Sometimes we begin a new endeavor. And because it's new, and because it's interesting and because it's exciting, there's a momentum that builds up. And um, that momentum can, it may actually be deceptive because there's no ignition. And so as, 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 the, you know, as the car is heading down that hill, it's starting to feel good. We're going somewhere. We're moving. But the engine has not started. And so because there's been no ignition, that momentum will not be sustained so the picture that we have here of missions is that it's ignited and sustained through prayer and fasting. And let me, this is, this is confession time for me again. I confess that I have not taught on prayer and fasting as much as I should. As much as I should have here. And I'm being convicted again of how essential these practices are to the life and health of the church and to our mission. I don't know about you, but my tendency is that I have a heightened sense of calling or need to pray, and specifically to fast, when we're in a crisis, or when I'm facing a crisis. Maybe it's a difficult decision I have to make, or that we as a church need to make. It's difficult times, it's hard times, let's fast and pray. That's not what we see in the Antioch church. There's no crisis that we're aware of. They are fasting as a regular matter of practice. They are praying as a regular part of their worship. And their worship and prayer are being carried on as normal. And in that moment, the, the Spirit speaks to ignite missions. Prayer and fasting should not be only for crisis moments. Prayer and fasting should not be something we only do to prepare for our real work. That's often how we see it, right? I'm going to fast and pray so I get ready to do this work. Thomas Chalmers was an author and theologian who lived in the late 1700s and early 1800s, and he's famous for making this statement, prayer does not enable us to do a greater work for God. Prayer is a greater work for God. And perhaps that is a change that needs to happen in our thinking and our practice. Rather than seeing prayer and fasting as preparation for the work, to see it as part of the work. Perhaps even the greater part of the work, as Thomas Chalmers says. So let me ask you a question. I don't want an audible response, but consider it for yourself. How often do you pray for our church and for our missionaries? How often do you fast for them? Now we're really getting into tricky territory, uncomfortable territory. And how often do you pray and fast for them? Not because they even because they're in a specific crisis, but simply as a matter of practice and consistency before the Lord. 
Um, so I'm going to issue a challenge to us as a church. It's, gonna, it's a simple one, and it's going to start pretty small. But, but we're going to try to be consistent in this, okay? Mondays at lunch, fast and pray. Fast and pray for our church and for our missionaries. Maybe you want to tie it into the mission of the week from the day before. But we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna set this as a goal for ourselves, okay? And so fasting, I know I don't have time to go into the theology of fasting or even the practice of fasting. Some people are not able to, for health reasons, they are not able to skip a meal like that. I should skip more than I do. But what we can do is you can find something that is sacrificial that you give up, that you will know you're giving up. Because it's that sense of need and desire that reminds us that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's that moment of want and desire that's not met that leads us to go in prayer to the Lord who is the ultimate meter of all desire. So Mondays at lunch, church-wide fast and prayer. You can do that alone. You can connect with other people from the church over Zoom or, or um, form your own little group, community groups. You can try to do something. I know that you're working and, and, and we're scattered, but let's make this a practice. Let's make this a practice to see what God might birth out of us and through this. And I, and I acknowledge we're starting small, folks. This is really small. But since we don't have this regular practice, let's start small rather than start big and fail. Let's start small and see how the Lord might grow it. Missions is ignited and sustained by fasting and prayer. Here's our third verb, empowered. Missions is empowered by the Holy Spirit. By this time, it shouldn't surprise us that Luke puts such an emphasis on the Holy Spirit in this passage. The very first day that we started the study of Acts, I, I told you that most theologians say Acts should be called Acts of the Holy Spirit, not Acts of the Apostles. And in this passage alone, consider everything that Luke specifically says that the Spirit does. The Spirit speaks, the Spirit sends, and the Spirit fills. He's active. He's not passive. And he's acting to carry out the mission of God through his church. Missions is empowered by the Holy Spirit. He is the one who sends. He is the one who convicts. He is the one who brings the fruit. And yet, how often we try to do God's work without seeking or even acknowledging that only the Holy Spirit can empower and make to succeed such an endeavor. Here's the fourth verb. Missions costs. Missions costs. Actually, this is the fifth verb, isn't it? Because we had two verbs in that one, in, in with one. Missions costs. There is a cost that must be paid in fulfilling the mission of God. It's paid by the church, and it's paid by those who go. We are familiar with the financial price. That's often what we think of when we think of cost, is money. So as a church, we support. As a church, we give. Um, and that's a financial cost. But I think there's a higher cost and a deeper cost that missions requires of the church and of those who go. 
When we were going through the refresh process as a church, and, and Pastor Gary Preston from Germany at the time had come to help us walk, walk us through that, he spoke to us about this passage, and he drew something out here that I had never seen before, about the cost to the Antioch church. And that was a price in personnel. It was a price in people. The Antioch church sent their best people on this mission. Saul and Barnabas. I mean, those other men are honored there. They're teachers and prophets, but we don't know anything else about them other than this statement. But Saul and Barnabas, I mean, they're kind of like the backbones of a lot of acts. They're the first missionary group. Paul writes the lion's share of the New Testament, or he's going to. He hasn't done it yet at this point. And these are the people that, that Antioch Church sends? That doesn't happen very often. Um, if we're honest with ourselves, we, I think we often think of, of sending or being willing to send the people that, oh, they're called and everything, but you know, maybe we won't miss them quite so much. But let's be reminded that God uses all people in his church. And there's a balance here, right? So we've seen a theme in Acts so far of God consistently using what I've called the no-names, people that don't have a, a lot of influence or title or position, and his gospel is exploding over the known world through them. And then we have another kind of a balancing example of God sending, God sending the, the best that Antioch had. And so it cost that church something. It was hard for them, but they did it in obedience now, let's consider the price that, that Saul and Barnabas pay, those who are sent. If you read the rest of Acts, which we're going to be doing, we're going to see that following the Holy Spirit into missions for them uh, was painful, literally painful, physically and emotionally and spiritually and in every way. At various times, they were stoned, beaten, rejected, imprisoned, unjustly sentenced, arrested, and eventually, Paul at least is executed. Missions costs. And are we prepared to pay that cost? It, it actually kind of puts the financial piece in a little bit of perspective, I think. Now, there are those of you that I know sacrifice greatly to give money to support our missionaries and our missions and our church. And God sees your generosity and he honors it. And he is blessed by it, as are all of us. But sending money for most of us, for not all, but for most of us, doesn't cut that deeply. It doesn't cost that much. So are we willing, though, to pay the price in people? And let's go back to the previous verbs, in prayer and fasting. Are we willing to pay that cost there? For the mission of our church, the mission of God to be successful and to gain converts and to transform individuals and families and communities and ultimately the world. And here's one last question. Are you willing maybe to pay the cost of going, of being one of the ones sent? When I was a child, we used to hear this challenge all the time. We heard a challenge to missions. I would guess that that here at Calvary, I started attending here when I was nine, when Pastor Bill took over as pastor, but 
I would say we probably heard that kind of challenge at least once every few months. And that's really fallen out of vogue in the church. Um, But I just want to put that out there again, that challenge. Are you willing to pay the price of going where the Holy Spirit might lead? Let's move on to the sixth verb. Fights. Fights. This is going to be another uncomfortable one for us, brothers and sisters. I'm just warning you right now. Missions fights for truth in an age of tolerance. I want you to hear that again. Missions fights for truth in an age of tolerance. So we have Saul and Barnabas eventually ending up in Cyprus, and they're in the city of Paphos, another diverse city. It's the, the would be like the county seat of the region. That's why they have a proconsul. A proconsul is, is like a governor. He was one step below a governor, but Cyprus, I guess, didn't merit a governor, so they had a proconsul. And we read that in Paphos, they encounter this sorcerer, Elymas, and he's, he's got a pretty high rank. He's an advisor. He's an attendant to the proconsul, and he clearly has the proconsul's ear. And Paul... Paul is not very seeker-sensitive in his approach to Elymas. I just want to point that out. Uh, And it's shocking, really, when we think of it in the context of missions, and we imagine sending missionaries or being missionaries ourselves, do you ever picture yourself calling someone out like Paul called out Elymas in the context of missions? No. We don't. And is there something in us that might rebel a little bit at that and say, but Paul, you're, not, you're supposed to be evangelizing. You're supposed to be loving. You're supposed to be reaching out and welcoming. You're supposed to be seeker-sensitive. It goes against our notions of how evangelism and mission should be done. And it's almost as though Luke imagined this possible response which is why he emphasizes that Paul was filled with the Spirit. So right before Paul speaks, what does Luke write? Filled with the Spirit. So if there's any question that Paul was speaking out of his flesh or just reacting in irritation and anger, Luke doesn't give us that option. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and so his excoriation of Elymas comes directly from the Spirit. However, Now, I'm not advocating that we need to go out and... <laughs> find random people on the street and tell them that, you know, they're sons and daughters of Satan and that they are, um, you know, they're going to be blind and that God is cutting them off. But, I, but we do need to understand what causes Paul's reaction here. Why does he react in this way? Is it because Elymas is a sorcerer? Is it because he is engaged in the dark arts Is it because of Elymas' own personal beliefs? No, it's not. What causes this reaction in Paul? It's when Elymas comes between the proconsul and the gospel. And when he he directly and intentionally tries to turn the proconsul from the faith, that is when Paul explodes. (laughs) And it seems almost as though Paul addresses this as an unforgivable sin. It's not, but 
It's one thing for an individual to choose to reject Jesus for themselves. It's another thing when they are actively keeping others from hearing and receiving the gospel. So for those of you who are parents, and even for those of you who are not, I want you to imagine for a moment that you are a parent, and you are, I don't know where you are, you're at the mall with your adolescent kids, or let's say younger than that, pre-adolescent kids, and they're a little ways away from you, but you're watching them, and you see someone come up to them, and clearly the person is offering them cocaine. Okay, they're, they're, you know, they've got the little baggies and everything they're offering and you see your kids just kind of being kind of interested and entranced and maybe reach into their pocket, you know. And so at that point, you go over there and you say, can we sit down and talk about this? Can, let's, let's reason this out. You know, why, why are you doing this to this child? You know, I mean, don't you have better things to do? Um, is this really the best way to spend your time and your abilities and your efforts? And, you know, son, um, you know, uh, co- cocaine, it's not the best idea for you, you know, I mean, um, let's talk about the different possible bad outcomes of this. Can we just have a conversation? N- I wouldn't do that. I think we would react with power. And we, why? Because we want to save our children. That's not the moment to have a calm conversation with the drug dealer and with your child um, to try to find the best way forward together. It's the time to intervene, and this is what we see in Paul. When Elymas sets himself between the proconsul and the gospel to try to turn him away, this is where Paul says, I will not allow truth to be compromised. I know that we are in a foreign context. I know that we are in the courts of power and that we are insignificant and that the proconsul is the authority here and the Elemis, you have his ear, but I am not going to bow to your worldly power or position. And it's, it's shocking and chilling to see what happens. So as we apply this to missions, and I would say to evangelism in general, we need to see that missions fights for truth even in an age of tolerance or relativism, which is where we live. That doesn't mean that we don't engage in measured debate or conversation. It doesn't mean that we um, intentionally make ourselves harsh and critical. But what it does mean is that we do not compromise on truth and that we are not afraid to speak the truth in love when it must be spoken. And that brings us to our final verb, which actually goes along with this one, with with the verb of fighting. It's the, the word keeps, the verb keeps. Missions keeps the gospel central. Missions keeps the gospel central. The final verse of this passage shows the interworking of miracle and proclamation. And I love the way that happens because God uses both. He uses the miracle and he uses the proclamation of his word. But I want you to note the relationship between the two because it's not what we would normally expect. Paul performs that miracle of of blinding Elymas and that was the turning point for the proconsul. 
But how does Luke express the relationship? When the proconsul saw what had happened, so the miracle, when he saw the miracle, he believed. But why? For he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. He already had context for the miracle. And that's what's important. See, the miracle was performed into a context. The proconsul had heard the teaching, so the foundation was there. The miracle was confirmation. We would expect the wording to be different. Maybe something like, when the proconsul saw what had happened, he was amazed. And he believed the teaching about the Lord. But what amazed him was the teaching. The miracle just confirmed it. And I know that there are those here, you know, we don't all have the same view of miracles and and the power of the Spirit and how the Spirit might move or act today. I believe that the Spirit does still perform miracles today. And I believe that he sometimes does that through people, like he did through Paul, like he did through others in the New Testament. But the danger is divorcing the miracle from the teaching. And we can go on, we've we've talked about this before, but divorcing the acts of service for people from the word of the gospel. And we can't do that. We have to keep the gospel central. They need to work together. In missions, in the church, in evangelism, the proclamation of the gospel must be central. Everything else we do might be part of the mission, but it must serve the proclaimed gospel. This is the theme all through the New Testament. What brings people to repentance and salvation is the proclamation of the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. All else must be a means to that end, whether it is physical provision or miracle. So please don't take what I'm saying out of context. I am not suggesting that we should not feed the hungry. I am not suggesting that we should not clothe the naked. I am not suggesting that we should not provide aid for those who are suffering. I am not saying that we should not take in refugees. To the contrary, we should do those things. But from the moment that we do those things and stop proclaiming the gospel, the death, the resurrection, the re- the, and, the, and the redemption that Jesus Christ brings upon repentance of the individual, then we're not engaged anymore in the mission to which God has called us. And I am very grateful for many of the missions and missionaries that we as a church support who grasp this balance. Those who work in the comunidades, you know, the favelas, providing food, and use that as a platform from which to share individually gospel with people, to pray with them. For those who work with children at risk, saving those lives and sharing the gospel with them. Those who minister to refugees and take them in. And at the center of their hearts and work is to see people's hearts and lives redeemed by the truth of the gospel, the death, resurrection, and lordship of Jesus Christ. So we need to be aware of the temptation to allow other things to be central other than the gospel itself. Because it's easier in a sense that way. Because the world will honor us if we just provide food for the hungry. The world will honor us if we just rescue people from human trafficking. The world will honor us if we just provide homes for the homeless. The the world, or at least a good part of the world, will honor us if we are only providing shelter for refugees. 
Jesus told us that the world will oppose us if we are proclaiming his gospel. And so there is a time where it becomes easier and more convenient to focus on the kinds of activities that are affirmed by the world and allow the gospel to lose its primacy of place and centrality. And that's what we must guard against. And brothers and sisters, I I hope this isn't just a, a personal opinion on my part. I hope that we can see this in scripture. Just as the proconsul was not amazed primarily at the miracle, he was amazed at the teaching, but the miracle is what turned the corner for him. So for us, we need to provide that foundation of the gospel proclamation so that as we feed the hungry, as we minister to the sick, as we welcome the refugee, as we care for the children at risk, that foundation of the word and the proclamation and the gospel is there so that those works and deeds provide the turning point for their amazement with the gospel itself. So this this sermon today has been a challenge for us, a a call to, to go back to the beginning and remember how missions began, that it was born from the church, that it was ignited and sustained by prayer and fasting, it was empowered by the Holy Spirit, came with a high cost, the missions fights for truth in an age of tolerance, and that it keeps the proclaimed gospel central. So I think it's wise for us as individuals and as a body to go back to this beginning and make sure that we're on course. Make sure on course in our own personal attitudes and focuses. Make sure we're on course with with how the Lord started his mission to the nations. And we, we, we understand, of course, that the mission of God has been in play. He has enacted that mission from the beginning of time. Creation was a part of God's mission. To what? God's mission to create images of himself onto whom and with whom he could pour out his love and who could know him and be in relationship with him. 